My father was hard of hearing. I was most proud that I could help my father. This was really a very special moment for me, but also for him. Welcome to Hearing Health Today. I'm your host, Craig Sharp. In this episode, Clinical Pathways for Mixed Hearing Loss, we'll hear from a global expert who will discuss what the current clinical pathways look like today and what gaps exist. We will also discuss maximum power output and explore why this and gain influence hearing outcomes and sound quality. This is a podcast for hearing health professionals. If you are a person with hearing loss or a member of the general public, please seek advice from your health professional about treatments for hearing loss. Professor Snick, thanks for joining us on Hearing Health Today. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Well, it's great for me to be able to participate in this. Uh, I'm retired uh, just for three weeks now, but I still have stories to tell, I think. So it's great that you invited me. Yeah, fantastic. Well, we'd love to dive into some of those stories today. Well, before we kick off, um, I'd love to just ask you, where are you speaking to us from today? Well, from my home, and I'm living in a small village near Nijmegen. Nijmegen is in the middle of the Netherlands, uh, and I worked at the clinic over there for many years. It's a rather famous uh, clinic, and I think this is a really a nice area where we are living. And, you know, it's also quite nice outside. It's a little bit summer-like, but it's autumn uh, already here, the leaves are falling. This is where I am, and I'm most happy to be here and being retired. Perfect weather to take advantage of your uh, new freedom, I guess. <laughs> so I know a lot of our listeners might know you from your work at Nijmegen, but what actually inspired you to work in the field of audiology? Well, you know, it's a little bit by chance. Uh, well, in the Netherlands, uh, well, the system that we have is a little bit different when we talk when you talk about audiologists. Um, all geologists in the Netherlands, they all have a degree, a master degree in physics. So we study, mm-hmm. we have all studied oh. physics. And then additionally, you can do a training and there's a four-year training. It's organized just like for medical specialists. Sure. Okay. So I studied physics and I had a great time over there. I worked in the laboratory, but I wanted to do something more. I wanted to see people. So I started mm-hmm. with teaching. I teach uh, at, at a college for some period. And then there was this position to become a trainee in audiology to do this four-year training and that's what I did and I really loved it. I enjoyed it a lot from the first moment on. Um, so that's how it all started. I should say that my father was hard of hearing. He had mixed hearing losses uh, in both ears and he was struggling with hearing devices and more and more when he became older and older. So he was also one of the first patients in our program, and we started with implantable bone conduction devices in in the late 1990s. It sounds like you originally studied just to be a physicist, and then sort of fell into hearing after that? Yes, yeah, that's exactly. I know you've been involved in some of the earliest development of hearing implants, and really furthered the body of scientific work for audiologists and ear specialists. But looking back on your career, is there anything that sort of sticks out, something that you're most proud of in terms of an achievement? I was most proud that I could help my father uh, yeah. with 
with the Baha device. This was really a very special moment for me, but also for him, because he had a lot of problems with his conventional devices. There was always problems with pain because of these, you know, spectacles that he had to wear, which were heavy, but also were, when there was quite some pressure on his head, uh, he was always struggling with it. But, you know, this happened many times in my career because, you know, what we treated uh, in our hospital, where we used these devices, were these patients who had running ears and who could not use uh, devices uh, and they really needed something and we were able to help them. So I remember quite a lot of patients who were so happy and who really were so grateful. But, you know, uh, it was not me who did. Of course, I helped them. But yeah. uh, it was the option that we had with these devices. I think there are quite a lot of patients that I remember quite well who are very, very happy with the help that we could offer them. Diving into your specialty a little bit. So I know you're a specialist in mixed hearing loss. Is that correct? I was the audiologist for the pediatric department, so children uh, and implants. Yes, I was involved in the implant program from the first day on when I started at a university clinic in Nijmegen, uh, both in the cochlear implants field and all the upper implants. Mm. And I've been the head of that, let's say, sub-department. So it sounds like you wore many different hats <laughs> over the years at Nijmegen. I did want to ask you a little bit uh, specifically about mixed hearing loss, because that's an area that we haven't really explored too much on the podcast. So to maybe set a foundation, could you describe a little bit what the current clinical pathways are to the diagnosis of mixed hearing loss, and then what the typical first-line treatment is after diagnosis? Well, of course, I can only talk about the Netherlands, how it's sure. organized in the Netherlands. If you have a problem with your ears, you go to your GP uh, and, you know, they try to treat it. When you have mixed hearing loss, there are a few options. There might be a few different reasons, um, but mostly it's a running ear, a chronic infected ear. That's the most well, usual cause. Uh, and, well, you know, then you have two problems. You have a medical problem because it might hurt and there's all these things coming out of your ears. Mostly the GP tries to help you with that, but uh, if it's really chronic, often it is chronic, unfortunately. They refer you to an ENT doctor in the Netherlands. And ENT doctors are all, they have an outpatient clinic in a hospital. That's how they work, you know, with the Netherlands. They don't have yeah. private practices. Um, and they try to solve the medical problem. If there is a medical problem, they look into it. If they can do some surgery to improve it or whatever. And then, of course, you have always the hearing loss. And for the hearing loss, mostly you are referred to an audiological center. So someone would go to a general practitioner to get a little bit of guidance. And if it's a chronic uh, infection, is there typically a quick referral to the audiology center? Or what does that look like? Yeah, it's a quick referral. You know, it's not that big our country. So, oh, well, we have good relationships between ENTs, uh, ENT clinics, and audiological centers. So we work together. We have implant teams. So there are surgeons or in the implant team, but also audiologists. You know, we do it together. We select the patients and we try to give them the best solution that is available. Uh, and, of course, it should be something that... We know well, the audiologist talks, of course, about the audiological outcomes that you would like to see. The surgeon might give information about different systems and, of course, has to be sure that he can do the, the surgery properly. Yeah. So mostly we work together in a team trying to find the best solution for a patient with a mixed hearing loss. 
I think we are all very much aware, also the ENT doctors, that we should not just deal with the disease, but that yeah. we should deal with the patient, with, with the, the person. person, you know, yeah. give him the best options uh, to, to go on with living. Do you think that the current standard of care for mixed hearing loss is patient-centric or as patient-centric as it could be? That's a very, very good question. I'm afraid it's not. In many places, in many other countries, quite often the, the ENT uh, surgeon is dictated what the solution should be. And yeah. mostly it's a solution that he prefers. I think there is a big problem with indeed whether patients get the best device. And this is one of the reasons why recently we wrote a consensus paper uh, about all options uh, for yeah. experiencing loss. And, you know, I did this, this together with the clinic from Hanover, uh, mm-hmm. where they have a lot of experience with implants. We wanted to produce a document um, that was patient-centered, but we also included all stakeholders. So we also included the companies, you know, this was quite a process. It was three years to have a consensus document. Sort of as an outsider to this field, why did it take so long? Like, was there not a consensus on what the... No, it's not a consensus, no. The big issue, of course, were the people in the companies that did understand that we needed this kind of consensus to be able to help the patients in the best way to formulate what was the best solution for a given patient. And so it took three years, and I'm most proud of that, that we have it. And I think it's a major step forward. And, you know... Um, uh, we have almost 90 authors, you know, so there are a lot of clinicians who also uh, agreed uh, with the statements. So I hope that this will be uh, an important step forward. For clinicians that are out there that treat mixed hearing loss, how do you envision they would use the consensus paper? Well, that's a very good question. You know, someone has to do it and it's there and there is quite a large group of authors behind it and our companies behind it. And at least we have something now where we can say, well, this is the consensus. We have to find ways to distribute it that will be published. Um, But yeah, it will take some time, but at least we have a starting point and we have something to refer to. Could you tell us a little bit more what's in the consensus paper? What are the treatments that are available today for mixed hearing loss? Surgery, um, but that is something mostly done because of medical reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, When you talk about mixed hearing loss might also be caused by some congenital uh, problems with the middle ear or the inner ear. Um, uh, And then you have less options uh, to improve hearing. Um, well, I think uh, we used to have behind-the-ear devices, the classical ones, and we have yeah. bone conductors with a steel headband or with a soft band or whatever. But these all have limitations. And uh, that's also something that I discussed on my website. I'm retired now, but I have a yeah. website where all my knowledge is about all these systems that are available, also in relation to what you can do surgically. The options that are available nowadays for these patients when surgery to improve hearing is not a good option or will result in a relatively poor result are really the implantable devices. They are so much better than the conventional devices. Mm-hmm. And um, well, there are several reasons for that. 
but they uh, are in principle, they are more powerful. And that's, of course, something that's really important because all these patients, when you provide them with a device, they are getting older and they need more amplification. And these are bone conduction devices, cutaneous ones, where you have a direct coupling between the processor and the skull. Transcutaneous ones, where you have still the skin, where you don't have this penetration through the skin to couple the device to the skull. Um, and then you also have middle ear implants where you can stimulate the cochlea more or less directly. And uh, this is all stimulation done by vibrations, you know. It's not an acoustical yes. signal that's going right. into the ear, but it's, well, a vibration of the head. And that vibration of the head is also picked up by the cochlea. And that's how this works. And then the stronger the vibrations, the better it is. But, you know, the big issue of bone conduction devices when you want to vibrate the head, you have a problem because the head is heavy. And if you have to vibrate it with a small device, that's not very effective, not very effective at all. Yeah. So uh, it works, uh, but it has limitations. Um, and yeah, you have the best option if you go for the direct coupling. We're talking about bone conduction devices. So the direct coupling, is that like the osseo integrated devices? Is that, yeah, that's yeah. osseo integrated. So you have an implant, uh, titanium, mm-hmm. uh, that you have to place. It's going through the skin. It's a percutaneous solution. And that's the most efficient way. Another question that I had for you around mixed hearing loss, how do you measure outcomes? Is there a universal metric that you would use to really determine how effective an intervention was? Well, very good question. Uh, There have been several proposals to come up with, let's say, a standard protocol, but you know, you know, everyone is doing it in their own way. And of course, if you want to measure the effectiveness of a solution, one of the things that you would like to measure, that's speech recognition, of course. How you measure it has to do with, let's say, the tests that are locally used in England and in Germany and in France. They use different tests with different materials. There are some options there, but that makes it already more difficult to make comparisons across borders. Most often what they do, they give some measure that tells you about the improvement of hearing. That is something like functional gain, they call it. It works well if you have a hearing loss because of aging and sensorineural hearing loss. Uh, But in these patients, you know, where you have a mixed hearing loss, you address directly the cochlea. Your device stimulates the cochlea. And so let's say it's a patient with a mixed hearing loss where the sensory neural hearing loss mm-hmm. is 30 decibels and then there's an air bone gap on top of it. Mm-hmm. Of course, the device itself addresses the cochlea, so tries to make it better. That's what you are aiming at, and that's where the gain of the device is. But if you measure aided and unaided, the bigger the air bone gap, the bigger the functional gain is. So functional gain, what's often used yeah. is, well, the real gain of the device plus the air bone gap. So if you do the measurements in patients who have a small air bone gap, then you end up with a small uh, functional gain. But if you have patients who have, uh, well, a bony atresia, they have a very big air bone gap and they have an enormous high functional gain. So functional gain tells something maybe about the, what, what the patient has experienced, but it doesn't give you any information whether the device was working well, whether the gain that was provided by the device was adequate. 
Can you normalize functional gain based on what type of patient you have, or is that really difficult to do? Yeah, that's something you can do, but that makes it more complicated what you should sure, do. Sure. And that is what we call uh, the, the effective gain. That's something that we introduced some time ago, but you really have to look only uh, to the bone conduction thresholds because all these devices really do something on for that level, you know. You have to compare the bone conduction thresholds and the aided thresholds. That difference tells you whether the device is working effectively. Is effective gain the right metric or is there a, another more easier way to measure performance or outcomes? Well, I think two answers. First of all, what everyone should do is stress the aided thresholds. Aided thresholds okay. in relation to the bone conduction thresholds. That is the information that we need. Then we can make a comparison between devices. And of course, the second metric uh, has to do with speech recognition. That's always really important. Uh, but of course, you have to realize uh, if you do measurements in an aided situation, you mm -hmm. want to see how much it improves. If you have such a large uh, bone gap, you always have a very high improvement. It doesn't mean that you've done the best job. If you want to do the best job, you really have to be sure that you compensate sufficient of the sensory neural hearing loss part according yeah. to you know the rules that we are using, the prescription rules. At a high level then, the two really important things to look at are aided thresholds with respect to the air bone gap. So one, and then two, um, looking at some sort of speech recognition score. Speech recognition is always really very important, yeah. you know, because that's telling you a, a much better story than thresholds are at 40 decibels. You really have to know how good it is, you know. But if you have the aided thresholds, you can already estimate what the speech recognition score should be, you know, yeah. and then, of course, you can measure it. And you should be sure that you're providing the patient with the best gain that's possible. We all should use much more the same metrics, um, as you said, to, to be sure to, to be able to make comparisons over borders, you know, so that we can use more data, also data published by other groups, uh, so that we, we have the best information to help our patients. We still should be critical about all these devices that are on the market, so, so well that we have a good idea which device fits for what patient, and that's well part of our job. And another question I had for you as it relates to changing device settings, what is maximum power output and why is it important? And I guess maybe more to the point, how does maximum power output and gain impact sound quality? Yeah, that's a very good question. It's a very important point, a very important point. When you provide a behind-the-ear device to a patient with a sensor or neural hearing loss, so it's a bit let's say, a loss of 40 decibels because of aging, no air bone gap. You know, you have to compensate for that hearing loss. But at the same time, you have to be sure that loud sounds are not too loud for these patients because you amplify sounds and the loud sounds that are available in our world should not exceed their limits, the, the, the loudness discomfort levels. And the loudness discomfort levels for patients, they are somewhere around 100, 110 decibels. Mm -hmm. So quite often when you have behind the ear device, you have to, well, um, reduce 
to maximum power output, allow the sound that the device can produce to be sure that it's below this 100 so that the patient okay. will not be bothered by loud sounds. That's the MPO. Now, as I told you before, when you talk about bone conduction device, you have to vibrate the whole head. Mm-hmm. Now, and that, that means that you need a very powerful device and uh, that, that there is never a problem with the maximum power output. Do you think that clinicians set the max power output or the MPO correctly, or are people too conservative or liberal with it? Do you think sometimes it's too high or too low? Like, what do you actually see in the industry? There are options to change the MPO in several devices, um, uh, and sometimes they indeed they do something. But you know, you never should change the MPO. There is no reason at all to lower the MPO of any bone conduction device. And the same is true for the middle ear implants. You should always use the MPO at maximum. Why do you think that some clinicians lower it? Uh, well, you know, sometimes it's also what happens with us. Uh, when you have a patient who really needs a device and finally they have this device and they use it, they are really amazed by all the sounds that they can hear, you know, and they say, wow, this is too much. But it's because they are not used to it. They, they yeah, don't yeah. know what they hear. And then sometimes, and it's also something that, that we did when we started, we thought maybe it's too much, maybe we should lower the NPO. Mm-hmm. But that, in the end, we learned quite quickly that that's not the issue. Not necessary. Tell, no, you have to tell the patients that it might be too much, that it might sound too much, but that they should take a few Over weeks. Time. Because yeah, of course. Say you have a patient that says, ah, like this is too much. Um, how long does it normally take them to acclimate to the new sounds? And that's really different between patients and also what they are used to, especially congenital cases who have never had proper hearing, you know. Uh, they have most problems to get accustomed to, to, to the sounds. Mm-hmm. If they already have experienced louder sounds, if they have lived in the normal world, let's say the, the regarding hearing, then it might be a matter of days. When it is um, uh, these congenital cases, uh, well, what we do mostly is maybe uh, lower the gain a little bit, but not the NPO. And when they come back for a second visit, then we increase the gain. So maybe there might be a little bit of too conservative of practice when it comes to NPO um, by responding, I guess, quickly to a patient's uh, comments around something sounding too loud and uncomfortable but generally you mentioned days but even if it were a few weeks like over a relatively short period of time people would acclimate to those loud sounds barring the congenital cases oh yes 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 yeah. and, and in the end you know they they, they all the, they might even ask for more gain you know uh, yeah. but they really need some time to get accustomed to it but it's not a, a matter of months it's a matter of days days uh, okay. they will yeah. tell you all kind of stories about sounds they never heard before if you go to the toilet and they flush the toilet that is that there was so yeah, much like I didn't noise. know that made sound yeah yeah yeah, yeah. they're not used to it so yeah. beginning it's on you and maybe something sometimes a little bit frightening for them but they learn quite quickly that it's not harming them and then they feel more safe and then it's okay so you've spent uh, a long time storied career in in hearing implants if we're looking specifically at some of the acoustic implants for mixed hearing loss and, and the different treatment pathways that you've outlined in, on your website and in the consensus paper, where do you think the industry is going? Like, what would you like to see happen in terms of innovation to really drive forward progress uh, in terms of the treatments that we're collectively able to offer patients with mixed hearing loss? 
of course, a higher MPO, devices with higher MPO would be nice. You know, there are also some more limitations. Um, it's quite difficult uh, with bone conduction uh, to provide low frequency amplification because low frequency is a lot of energy. So you need really very powerful devices. Also important to realize is that you have to think about the future of patients, especially people who are a little bit older. You should provide them with an option that they can use until the end of their days, preferably. Mm-hmm. Not that you should have an option that you can use for the next 10 years, and maybe yeah. when these patients are 80, that they have to come back to the clinic because they have to be updated to another, another yeah. device that's more powerful. Mm-hmm. So especially in the elderly paper patients, I think you should go for the most powerful solution. So we have a lot of listeners who are new to uh, hearing healthcare, new hearing healthcare practitioners, and just curious, given sort of your extensive history in the field, what advice would you have to um, someone who's new to audiology, new to treating patients of all different types of hearing loss, but especially mixed hearing loss? Any words of wisdom? Well, of course, um, fitting uh, implantable devices is really challenging, and it's something that you know, you always have to look for the best. You have to really understand how all these devices work. It's really interesting to be in this field. It's challenging, it's interesting, and it keeps you up to date. You really have to study, you have to look into all data because you have to understand how the ear works, how you can improve your outcomes because they might be not good enough, but can be done. To how can you help the patients better? For us, also with bilateral uh, implants, there is quite a lot of work that has been done and can be done to improve it all. So really, uh, this is, uh, I think, from, let's say, a more scientific point of view, this is the most interesting field that I've been into, talking Mm -hmm. about audiology. This was the most interesting thing because it's so challenging and because of all the options that are available and also because all the collaborations that are so important, collaborations with the ENT doctors, but also the collaborations with the companies, people who work the companies because all together we have to do the job you know it's not the audiologist it's not EMT it's not the companies we all have to do it and this is why also this consensus statement is really important because it really tries to build a better bridge between all disciplines that's let's say one of the main topics of these uh, consensus statements so yeah I think an audiologist if you have the option go into this because you will learn a lot you can help patients for whom there are no good, well, conventional solutions. So you might open a lot of patients who are really very satisfied, who are very happy with these new options that are available nowadays with all these implantable options for patients with a mixed hearing loss. Ott, thank you so much for joining us on Hearing Health today. It's been a fascinating discussion just to learn a little bit more about the area of mixed hearing loss and what some of the clinical pathways are and how they've evolved uh, over time. So thank you again for sharing your expertise and best of luck in retirement. Well, thank you very much. It was a great honor for me to do this, you know, because uh, although I'm retired, I still have a story that I would like to tell. And this is a perfect opportunity for me to tell a little bit about what I've learned. And I hope that there will be listeners who can really appreciate this. We've received some great feedback from our listeners around the world. Please continue to share your perspectives with us so we can create the most engaging podcast for hearing health professionals. Click the link in the episode notes to share your thoughts. We'd love to hear them. 
And stay tuned for our next episode, when we will be speaking with Barbara Kelly from the Hearing Loss Association of America and Abigail Herringer, a CI recipient who many might recognize from her recent appearance on the TV series, The Bachelor. Just a quick reminder, the views of the interviewees in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Cochlear Limited or its subsidiaries. This material is intended for health professionals. If you are a consumer, please seek advice from your health professional about treatments for hearing loss. Outcomes may vary, and your health professional will advise about the factors which could affect your outcome.